0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and owe. We'll help you take the next step at Fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. The topic for today is investing, which I feel like we have been talking about a lot lately, but that's because we are hearing from all of you that you want to be able to own this part of your life, that you want to be able to do it better. And we have said this before. We will say it again. Women are great at this. It's not just our opinion. It is a fact. When women invest, we are more likely to outperform men by about 40 basis points or four-tenths of 1% on average. We also save more. And when you combine those two things, you get an extra quarter million dollars in your retirement portfolio if you do it consistently. The key, though, is that many of us are just not investing. Many of us are leaving far too much money in cash. Women overall, we invest 40% less money than men do. And when it comes to millennial women, about 47% consider money to be the most stressful thing in their lives. It's time for all of that to change and Erin Lowry is here to help us do that. We are happy to have Erin back on the show. We're celebrating her second book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, a beginner's guide to leveling up your money. I just love the title, Erin. Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. There's very there's a lot of superhero imagery in that. So welcome. Thanks for having me. And the leveling up your money gets into that kind of gamified feeling, too. So it really all ties together. It really, really does. So we met for the first time a couple years ago for the launch of your first book, Broke Millennial. What made you say, all right, it is time for me to invest? I feel like it's the natural next step.
2: And honestly, this book is truly a response to the direct messages on Instagram and the tweets and the emails, because in the first book, there is a very small chapter about investing and largely focuses on retirement, because that's how most people get started. But then at the bottom of it, I said, here are some other resources you can go check out. And I started getting messages that said, I understand that these are supposed to be for beginners, but they're just way too complicated. And I realized there's not really a book in the market that super, super simplifies it all the way back to the beginning, assuming you have zero
1: understanding of any terminology. So let's assume that the people who are listening don't know as much as they feel they should know. How do you get started? What's the very, very first step when it comes to becoming an investor? I would say it's twofold.
2: The first thing that I like to walk people through in the book is this idea of putting on your financial oxygen mask. And it's a very simple checklist that you have to run through to see if you're even ready to start investing. Now, there's a huge caveat in this conversation, and that is, of course, you should be putting money into a retirement plan. And yes, that is investing. But when I say going through the financial checklist, it's really about investing in taxable accounts. So in addition to investing for retirement. And the other thing and the biggest thing you have to do is educate yourself. And truly, that has to be a self-imposed thing because at very, very few points in our lives are people actually going to be teaching us about investing and teaching us the terminology. And it's that lingo that makes it feel so inaccessible
1: to people. At a point in our lives where not everybody is even maxing out our 401ks or making a full IRA or Roth IRA or SEP IRA contribution – Why not focus on getting people to do that? So that is a focus in the beginning. And then it's also a conversation about what are your goals,
2: because that is step one of the entire process is you have to set your goals. And for some people, there are shorter-term goals than retirement for which they might need to be investing, such as preparing
1: for a child's college education. Mm -hmm. Okay, So let's say you have gone through the oxygen mask checklist Let's say you've checked all the appropriate boxes and you're ready to start. You are putting as much as you can into your retirement plan at work. You want to invest outside of that retirement plan. What's step one? Step one, and this is so cliche and I just said it, is setting your goals because your
2: goals dictate everything else. Because once you set your goals and you know why you're investing, from then you can start to decide okay, how much risk do I want to put on my money? So sussing out your risk tolerance, figuring out your time horizon, which is when do I need access to my money? Because those things are going to get dictate exactly what you pick. And then you have to go pick your investments, which is the hard part and which I cannot prescriptively tell you what to do because it's going to depend on everyone. But with the book, I try to give you the tools and the resources to be able
1: to go figure that out for yourself. One of the tools that you give people is the language. You start with terminology for beginners and we try here on this show to break it all down and to not say anything that people aren't going to understand. But you talk about compound interest. Um, we haven't done that for a while. You explain that it's magic. What's your what's your preferred way of getting at this topic? One, I love to use a
2: quote that always gets attributed to Albert Einstein. Who knows if he actually said it? But the quote is, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. And it's that idea that it works for you or against you. And many of us have experienced it working against us. It's paying those student loans and feeling like your principal balance never, ever goes down. It's trying to get rid of that credit card debt. And it just seems to be going up and up. Well, that's it working against you. Now, if you flip that and think, oh, I can harness this power for myself, I can see how this just keeps growing and growing and growing, but in a positive direction. I always feel like that's the best way to start to get at this topic. Now,
1: simply, it's earning interest on your interest. Mm -hmm. That's the basis of what compound interest does. My stepfather raised his children to believe that their best friend was time and compound interest and they they would quote that back to him whenever whenever asked who's your best friend um or what's your best friend you similarly have a very nice easy way to explain inflation go to it so the way i like to think about this is your grandparents could probably take the
2: family out to a nice meal for 5 or 10 dollars 50 years ago it is hard pressed to get a nice meal at a fast food restaurant these days for 5 dollars That's simply inflation. The price of goods go up over time. So if your money isn't working for you and it's not growing, you are losing purchasing power. So if it is literally sitting under your mattress, which some people actually do, or if it's sitting in a savings account earning 0.01%, it is not growing with inflation, which typically we attribute to being about 2% per year. So you need to be trying to earn at least 2% per year in order for your money to
1: buy you as much today as it did last year. And finally, on the list of terms, we have to bring in the variable of time. How does time become important? I mean, clearly it's important in the way that you just explained inflation. I remember, and this is definitely going to age me, but I remember being able to buy a Hershey bar, I believe, for a dime. I believe it was a dime. It may have been a quarter, and I may just be, you know, walking through the snow on my way to school miles and miles and miles. Uphill both ways, I assume. Yes, of of course. But time is important.
2: (laughs) It is, and that is your best asset as an investor, which is why it's so important to start when you're young. And the reason is you can put a lot less in than trying to play catch up in the future. Because if you put a small amount, or it might seem large to you, but over the context of how much you're earning, it could be a small percentage of your overall salary into the market and it starts growing when you're 25, you can continue to put less in than if you start when you're 35. And trying to double down and play catch up is really hard to do. And the other thing I always love to point out is life doesn't tend to get less complicated. I think sometimes when we're younger, we think, well, you know, five, 10 years, maybe I'll be making more money. I'll have this debt paid down. Then I will really start putting money into my 401k and I'll put in twice as much as I would have at 25. Well, maybe you can't. Maybe you got married and started a family and bought a house and maybe a medical issue comes up. Things just tend to get
1: more expensive, even if you're earning more money. That's why I like this idea of investing outside of retirement whenever you can. I mean, it's not always correlated to age. Sometimes you have years where you just make a lot more money and have a lot less in terms of responsibilities because the roof doesn't go or other emergencies don't hit you. And some years, all of those things happen at once. And so we have to take these financial opportunities as we get them. Agreed. How have you set up your own portfolio?
2: Well, I'm much riskier than I am in real life, which I find really interesting. And I think that that is really attributed to how investing was talked to me when I was younger. And that was my dad shortly after 2008. I believe it was the summer of 2010. He told me exactly how much money he and my mom lost in their portfolio in 2008 happened And then he told me how much they had because they continued investing and then the market started to turn back around. And the lesson essentially was it goes down, but it does come back up, and the key is to not panic. And that little parable really, truly set me on a path of being like, I can take risk, especially when I'm younger. This is the time to put a little bit more risk on my money. Because in real life, I'm quite the goody-goody two-shoes who does not break rules. So I think that it's funny that when it comes to investing, I'm very bullish, and I am willing to put that risk on my money.
1: How bullish are you? I would say I'm at about 90% invested in stocks, which is very bullish. No, it is. It's it's very bullish, and it's much more aggressive than my portfolio, at least at this point. But I'm also a good two decades older than you are, maybe even a little bit more. So I guess that's understandable. I'm closer to 60-40 at my age, 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. I want to talk about this concept of risk and getting comfortable with risk or at least getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? And that's, by the way, what this whole conversation is about. It's about making your savings work as hard as you do so that you can reach your financial goals faster. All of this starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, the folks at Fidelity will work with you to understand and evaluate your investment options and different ways to grow your savings. And you can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are talking with Erin Lowry author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. This concept of risk is very, very difficult for many women, including me, to get comfortable with. I understand your example. What are some other ways that we can make ourselves feel okay about taking the risks that we need to take? Well, and I like that you just positioned
2: it as being comfortable with the uncomfortable because sometimes that is what it takes in the beginning – One thing that I like to recommend, too, is just starting small. You can just incrementally start pushing yourself towards your goal. And maybe right now it just makes you feel a little bit too queasy and you only want to put 4% of your salary, perhaps enough to get an employer match on a 401k. That's really a great goal to start out with. And I would say with that money, try to push yourself to... Looking at a risk tolerance that if you're thinking, oh, I don't want to put any risk on my money, go at least moderate. Just try a 50-50 split and see what happens. The other thing I like to say is try to protect yourself from yourself. What does that mean? Now, what's going to happen is, listen, the market's going to go down at times. I cannot guarantee returns on anything, but I can tell you over the course of your life as an investor, you are going to see it go down. And I had a friend of mine who used to log into her bank account, and her bank was tied to the same place that she did her investing. So at the very top of the screen, she would see all of her investment information, and anytime we I went through a correction, she would get the angry red arrows down that you see showing that your portfolio went down and it stressed her out. And I said, listen, you either need to get a new bank and have a completely separate situation between your investments and your banking, or you need to do something like put a piece of paper at the top of the screen so you don't see it when you log in. Because every time she saw it, she had a knee-jerk reaction to it. And that's a really good way to get started is set your portfolio based on your risk tolerance, but maybe push yourself a little bit more if you know, hey, I'm being a little bit too conservative, especially for my age and my time horizon. Again, time horizon, the fancy term of when you need your money. And then just check in on it once a year. Just once a year. So some people will say once a quarter. But if you know that you are really going to have a knee-jerk reaction to it, once a year is perfectly acceptable.
1: And as far as that appropriate asset allocation, what's your rule for figuring out what it should be? I know that in your book you say you don't like the rule of subtracting your age from 100?
2: That used to be the old rule of thumb is your age minus 100. So let's say I'm just about to be 30. So 100 minus 30 is 70. 70% should be in stocks. Now, some people have said as that rule was created quite a few decades ago. So as right. we're I go with longer. 110. Yep. So some people say 110, others say 120. That gets you a little bit closer to what it should be. I interviewed a lot of experts for this book, and almost every single one of them pushed back on a quote-unquote rule of thumb because it really should be a personalized, tailored thing. And I think that when you are figuring out your risk tolerance, your goals need to be at the absolute forefront and when you need access to your money. So the shorter your time horizon, again, the time that you need access to your money, the less risk you take. But if you're 40 years away put a little bit more risk on that money.
1: Well, and if we're talking about money that you need for a down payment on a house or college tuition that needs to be paid in a couple of years, that money doesn't belong in the stock market today. It never belonged in the stock market.
2: It doesn't. And that's the big thing about knowing your goals and knowing when you need access to it. And I would say if you need your money in the next two to three years, and that's a hard deadline, do not be investing it. Now, if there's some wiggle room on your deadline and you're comfortable being like, well, I guess I push back buying a house for two years and we hope the market recovers and your risk tolerance is fine with that, that's your choice. But I would really be careful about putting any risk on money that is a three-year or closer goal.
1: I want to talk about the investments themselves. Having gone through this whole process, where do you come out when it comes to investing? Are you picking stocks? Are you actively picking mutual funds? Are you investing in a passive way? Are you all in favor of ETFs or index funds or target date funds? Having done all the research, what's your answer?
2: Now, this is just for me. I always feel like this is important to say because my version is not necessarily what's going to work for you, the listener. I personally like index fund investing. That's what I've been doing for years. It's what I'm comfortable with. I like the low fees. I personally, right now, don't feel like it needs to be actively managed in a mutual fund, although there can be merits, depending on what your goals are. And then I would also say target date funds get a lot of heat. And I have mixed feelings about them myself, but I think that they're a great way to get started. Because I have such a clear memory of trying to set up my 401k for the first time. And I logged in, you know, I put in my name, my social security, set a beneficiary, was feeling very adult at 23. And then all of a sudden I get to the page where it has listed all the investments. And I'm seeing words like large cap, small cap, Dodge and Cox, and I know nothing. And I just exited out. And I think a lot of people do that because it's very overwhelming. And a target date fund takes some of that pain point out. And what it does is it allows you to be putting money into a fund where you have an active manager, somebody is building the portfolio for you. Now it's kind of a one-size-fits-all, so not tailored directly to you. And it's tied with approximately when you'll retire, so maybe 2065. It starts aggressive, then goes to more moderate, then goes to more conservative over time. And that's a great way to get started. Expenses are higher. Fees are higher. So every dollar you pay in fee is less compounding for future you. Always something to consider. And again, like I said, it is kind of a one-size-fits-all approach, so it's not built directly for you. But I heard so many horror stories while interviewing people for this book of folks who would put money into a retirement account, assuming that it's invested. Yeah. But never picking investments.
1: And they have a nice chunk of change saved, but nowhere near what they need for retirement. I like that 401k plans and other work-based retirement plans are more and more automating people into the right target date fund for a person of their age and assumed retirement date. I also think target date funds solve the problem of people who say they'll rebalance and don't. Yes, absolutely. And I had a famous conversation, and I say it was famous because Jason Zweig wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. I had a famous conversation with John Bogle when I was doing my radio show for Oprah, and he's a big index fund, rebalance quarterly, and, and I said to him, okay, so how often do you rebalance? And he said, ah, I never rebalance. And I'm thinking... Okay, if John Bogle doesn't do this, and granted, he's got plenty of money, he might not ever have to, and we owe him a big debt for the way that he revolutionized the industry, but if he's not going to get himself to rebalance, I really don't expect that many people get themselves to do it.
2: That's very true, and also just terms that you hear like tax loss harvesting and things like that where... I am not currently going into my portfolio once a quarter and looking to tax optimize and sell my losers to replace with things in order to get the best tax benefit, which is where a robo-advisor might come in. That Mm -hmm. could be a great advantage. Fee is higher, but that fee might be of value to you. And that's a huge through line of the whole book is
1: it's okay if you want to spend a little bit more. Just make sure it's bringing you real value. Before we wrap here, two more questions. Should I invest if I have student loans? Oh, it's the million-dollar question, probably literally, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And I liked the experts that I interviewed for the book, which I keep saying this because I am not an investing expert. I like to position myself as a translator. I went out and got the knowledge and distilled it into this book. They almost ubiquitously said 5% is your cutoff. So first of all, of course, you have to be current on your student loans. No one ever regretted paying off their student loans early. So if you want to get really focused on paying those down early, That's great, as long as you are still putting some money away for retirement. So 5% is the minimum that you should be putting away? Is that the cutoff? 5% is the minimum on interest rates. So 5% being if your student loan has an interest rate of 5% or higher, Ah. not worth investing outside of retirement. Just focus your extra money on getting those student loans paid off. Now on the flip side, if it's 1% to 4% and you've got the risk tolerance and the debt tolerance, which is another key factor here, to be investing at the same time as paying them off, well, the math might work out in your favor.
1: But you should still be investing in your retirement in a work-based plan or an IRA. Yes, regardless of the interest rate. So you want to make sure that you can always
2: be paying at least your minimum on your student loans because you got to keep those current. And you really need to prioritize retirement. Now, if you've decided, okay, I've got money in retirement and I'm paying off my student loans and I still want to be investing on the side of that,
1: that's when the 5% rule comes into play. Gotcha. And impact investing. I know you read a lot about it. You heard a lot about it in researching women with money. I heard a lot about it because women and millennials are leading the way when it comes to wanting to put our money to work to change the world what's your advice for getting started with impact investing
2: so i would look at it two ways one is there are apps and robo advisors that exist that specifically cater towards index invest or impact investing excuse me so if you know that that's how you want to be investing and you want it to be very aligned with your core fundamental beliefs those exist out there for you now you do need to consider diversification and you need to consider returns. So you need to make sure that your money is still well-rounded. You're not putting everything just into a couple of companies or a couple of funds that just have a few companies in there. So it's that's an important consideration. I also like to say that Listen, you have a voice no matter where you're investing. You own a piece of the company. You get to have a say. And you also get to have a say with the brokerage firm that you use. And that's the company that you are investing through. So just to throw out some names, this isn't an endorsement, but just to give context, Fidelity, Vanguard, Charles Schwab are examples of brokerages. So that's where you go in order to actually be doing the investing to get started now, if you rally with thousands of other people to say, hey, we want this gun manufacturer taken out of our index fund, you have a voice. Now, I'm not saying they're always necessarily going to pull it out of an index, but that's an example of something that happened in recent years. And I think that it's also something to consider that if you're doing general index investing, you still can balance things in.
1: Erin Lowry, the book is Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. It's been a pleasure, and I hope we'll have you back soon. I hope so. It's been great to be back. Thanks so much. Our producer, Kelly Hultgren, and our resident millennial, (laughs) has joined me in the studio. Hi, Kel. Hello. Hi, everyone. So I give Aaron a lot of credit, actually, for Mm -hmm. tackling the topic of investing. I feel like I want women to take it as seriously and think of ourselves as investors as much inside of our retirement accounts as outside of our retirement accounts. But I get why she went about her research that way. Totally. And she has a really nice key at the
0: beginning of her book for meeting you wherever you are in your journey to investing. So I actually think the book isn't just for novice investors. I think anyone could benefit from going back. And it's a really good for just understanding terms that we hear all the time but might not be able to put into practice, going into more on robo-advisors, which I really appreciated, and then also going more into social impact. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, putting our money where our hearts Hearts are. Yeah, our hearts are. And that's something as I'm building wealth and I feel I'm more empowered to do, I will be focusing on more in the coming years.
1: Absolutely. All right. What do we have question-wise? Questions.
0: We have Two questions today. They're a little on the longer side, so I kept it to two, but they're really good ones. Okay. The first from Rebecca. To make a long story short, my husband and I own a rental property that's underwater. We were reluctant landlords to begin with, and having this property is creating a lot of stress and anxiety for a number of different reasons. We can't sell without losing a lot of money, but we need to spend money in order to get the house rental ready for the next set of tenants. Doing either will really deplete our savings. We talked about borrowing from our 403Bs just to sell and have the property off our hands but I'd rather not do that. We're in our mid-40s and for various reasons weren't really able to start saving for retirement until about 10 years ago so we're already behind. On the other hand owning this rental property and all of the financial stress and liability that goes along with it is causing a lot of unhappiness. I'm wondering if there's an option that we're not aware of. We feel trapped. Thanks I love your podcast and really wish I had made better financial decisions when I was younger. If I did I wouldn't be in this dilemma.
1: Well So the solution, first of all, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks for the nice words about the podcast. I am sorry that you are in this position and that it's causing so much stress. Kelly and I are actually recording this episode on National Stress Awareness Day, so we feel you. Mm. Um, I would talk to the bank about whether or not you could sell short. Basically, this is the bank giving you permission to sell the home for – less than you owe on the mortgage and see if you can find a path clear to doing that. You may find that should you do that, you owe taxes on the difference between what you owed and what you were able to sell the home for. So it will still be a liability, but it won't be as great a liability. And the other thing that I would think about is I mean my feeling overall is that you got to get rid of this place because it is causing you so much unhappiness if you are going to pull money out of a 403B in order to do it don't withdraw borrow Because when you borrow, you pay the money back to yourself, you pay interest back to yourself, and you're not hit with the same sort of taxes and penalties, that may be the other way out. Um, And typically, the clock on repaying a loan from a retirement plan runs for about five years. So you may find that you're able to do that.
0: And I'll come in with the emotional piece. I hope you don't beat yourself up any more than it sounds like you already are. I... Read this somewhere, and it really helped me with thinking of all the things I could have done or should have done with my money so far in my earning years. And it's stripping the emotion out of it a bit, but to look at them as sunk costs, like we can't do anything about it anymore, so why fester, right? And stress about it. Instead, try to take a more proactive approach of where you are now, which is exactly what you're doing. But yeah, that's that's all I can really add. Is I want you to not beat yourself up any more than you already have. Amen. Yes. All right. We'll do one from Elaine. I'm 50 years old, single, and work in healthcare as a contractor for the main reason of having a flexible lifestyle to travel. Frustrated with rising premiums for healthcare insurance, I discovered if I work over 1,500 hours in a calendar year, my employer is required to provide healthcare coverage. Fortunately, I qualified for free healthcare for 2019, saving $7,000. As a side effect, I have all this extra money. I realize this is a fortunate predicament. I max out my 401k. Made too much this year to contribute to a Roth, but have 37000 in a Roth, 500000 in the 401k, have a pension, own a home in San Francisco, and as a fortunate side effect of trying to work more to qualify for health insurance, I have 70000 in my credit union and a super reward checking account, earning 2%. Snaps, girl. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I plan to continue with this lifestyle to get free health insurance and will likely have a higher income as a result. My question for you is, what is the best way to use this extra cash I have? Should I invest in an annuity or EFT? EFT is an exchange-traded fund. She means ETF. Okay. The market intimidates me. Should I pay down my mortgage? I already make extra payments, and with an interest rate of 3.8% and 15 years left on my mortgage, I could pay it off early in seven years. But with such a low interest rate, is it a better idea to invest the extra income in the market? I could also plan to purchase a vacation home as my current place is easy to rent out in a central location.
1: Elaine. Elaine, you have options. Wow, girl. You have you have options. Here's what I want you to do with a small piece of that $7,000. I want you to make an appointment with a financial advisor because you've got amazing options. But what I'm not hearing from you is a clear picture of what you want, mm. right? And, and when I went out and reported... Um, women with money, you'll remember that was the question we asked Mm -hmm. everybody over and over. What do you want, right? Money is a tool. And let's use it when you are clearly working so hard to get what you want. And it may be a vacation home, Mm -hmm. or it may be more travel, or it may be more money in a brokerage account that you can use to do the thing you want when you decide what that thing happens to be. Mm Because I don't know if you've quite gotten it now. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't pay off the mortgage. I think the interest rate on that mortgage is really low. It's tax deductible. You can pay it off before you retire. And you can do that without a lot of stress. So I probably would not put it there. But as far as these other things... Get thee to a financial advisor. <laughs> Sit down and, and find somebody that you can work with. You can find somebody, I'm sure, through your retirement plan at work. You can find a fee-only advisor if you're interested in one through NAPFA, napf That's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Ask friends, ask colleagues mm-hmm. for recommendations, people that they work with, that they have found to be good fits for them? And then really think about that question. Mm-hmm. And don't do anything until you know what the answer is. Yeah, you've done so many wonderful things with your
0: money for yourself already. I hope you enjoy yes. all of it more than you already have. So thank you for writing in. Thank you to everyone who writes in. You can email me
1: at mailbag at hermoney.com. And in Thrive today, Kelly, have you had lunch yet? No, I haven't. Well, how much do you spend on food is the question of the day. (laughs) Turns out (laughs) – I'm not putting you on the spot.
0: That's good. (laughs)
1: Turns out nearly half of American millennials are spending more on food than they are on their retirement savings, according to a survey Mm. by LendEDU. I don't think that's true for you, actually. I don't think so either. Although that may sound shocking at first, it's actually pretty easy to do when you think about the high cost of restaurant meals and the increase in food costs overall. In the last 20 years, food prices have gone up by about 2.6% per year on average, and in 2019, the USDA says some prices may increase by as much as 4%. Thankfully, there are many, many ways to save on the cost of food, as we recently learned from some of the women in our private Her Money Facebook group, many of whom wowed us with their incredible meal prep skills. So if you haven't taken a look at that conversation by joining the group, that's something that you want to do. A few of their suggestions, shop around the sales, create meals in advance, make use of freezer space to preserve the leftovers, or take a listen to our podcast with New York Times food columnist and Instant Pot Queen Melissa Clark. Yes, the woman is willing to spend an ungodly amount of money on salmon, but she also (laughs) offered some helpful money saving tips for home cooks everywhere. My own personal money saving tip this week, chicken thighs do tell chicken thighs seem to be the wonder meat they're inexpensive they taste much better than chicken breasts you can get them skinned boned if you happen to have an instant pot you Mm -hmm. throw them in there it's like a magical creation 15 minutes are thighs dark meat they are oh yeah yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Erin Lowry for the great conversation. Please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Also, recommend us to your friends. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music comes from Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with Laura Cox Kaplan, host of the She Said, She Said said podcast, and we'll talk soon.